Hey folks, it's the Unsung Podcast. I am Mark and that is Chris. That is. Hi Chris. Hiya. He's got his glasses on again. Yeah, it's another intellectual week. Serious business. Spanning a fortnight of thinking. Where are we? What are we doing? This Why are we here? This is part two of Playola, the cleverly titled, properly researched, grown-up episode of the Unsung Podcast. Yeah. Without fart buttons and with only one prince alarm per episode. Hi-yo. Um, Yeah, this is a two-parter talking about the phenomenon of Playola Mm -hmm. And I'll do a little recap But before we do a little recap We would like to ask you If you want to continue funding uh, quality journalism Or if you even want to start funding quality journalism Since you're here Fucking cheapskate, (laughs) since you're here Go on our Patreon, please, if you like this And subscribe at the lowest level We're not asking for the world I mean, you can join the Record Club if you want That's fantastic That's great And the people on that are better humans overall but if you're not there yet, go and give us the equivalent of like a fucking coffee a month for all these fucking like yeah. twenty two thousand words we worked out for this episode's notes. Twenty two thousand that's more words than probably half of you mum <laughs> Muppets have written Muppets. in your fucking life. Right? So just get with the programme. Get right? with the programme. Go and go and give us something, please, or buy a bit of merch. Whatever. Anyway, now that that's out the road, now that the sale is done. The messy business of money changing hands. Let's get back to the messy business of, of money, money changing, changing hands. hands. <laughs> uh, so Playola is as Mark would say, Playola is a pay on a oh, no <laughs> as a play no no, it's a pay on a play. No, no. So, Mark, Playola is a play on, on the, the word payola, payola. Right? No, I'll recap. It's a hard thing to say, man. <laughs> I'll, do, I'll do my bit, all right, because you're going to do a lot of talking in this episode. So, Payola, the original phenomenon, goes back, you know, at least 150 years, went all the way back to the, the days when sheet music was the only real way to sell any music. It would be performed, people would go out and buy the sheet music after that. And money started changing hands to try and boost the times that a song was played in any given night to try and boost those mu- the, those sheet music sales. Go forward to like Chuck Berry, uh, Maybelline, his first single. Maybelline, why can't you be true? Oh, Maybelline. Why can't you be true? You done started doing the things you used to do. Money changing hands to try and get that in the radio. We can debate whether or not that was a necessary evil because of the fact that African Americans could barely get on the radio in those days and uh, those those labels like Atlantic uh, were, were doing things to try and give some opportunity to artists that didn't have it. Then you keep going into the 70s and you've got big rock acts, suddenly, you know, a lot of drugs and money changing hands with, with DJs, setting the price to get on their shows and living the high life. Into the 80s, you got notorious figures in <laughs> LA. Yeah, again, lots of drugs. People getting kneecapped. Uh, people bringing in organised crime to, as, to act as enforcers. The labels stopped making the payments themselves because they saw how CBS Records got burnt in the 70s for that. So they start bringing in these proxies, these independent promoters. And these independent promoters are given a budget and off they go. And uh, what's the phrase? Uh, don't ask, don't tell. Don't ask, don't tell. Mm. You know, oh, you got us in the radio. That's all we need to know. But those promoters had territories and those territories had to be enforced sometimes with violence. Amount, amounts of violence. Yeah. yeah. You know, people got lifted for that. Although, notably, almost nobody went to jail for that in that era. Into this, uh, the nineties, it was still going on. Um, albeit, you know, we had people like Interscope who embraced the the legislation, which said if you pay to get something on the radio, you have to declare it. So they started declaring it, and it still kind of worked. In the two thousands, it's still happening. You got uh, the New York Ge- uh, Attorney General 
making public 300 emails that had been subpoenaed from the big record labels and these emails just it's as explicit as it gets you know just huge amounts of money changing hands to get famous artists you know your, your nine inch nails your beyonces onto the radio um we talked about Pearl Jam, a band who sort of plateaued, and so Epic Records spent a quarter of a million trying to push the Riot Act album. I'm gonna save for her. And it didn't work, so continued and it continued into the late uh, till the present day to the present day effectively mm-hmm. yeah Rolling Stone in 2020 brought out a brilliant article which exposed a series of text messages by a guy called Steve Zapp note Steve Zapp with one P not <laughs> the presumably innocent Steve Zapp with two P's who represents bands like Sleep uh, and at one time Biffy Clyro I think but yeah so Steve Zapp with one P uh, caught red handed effectively uh, telling people don't answer the phone to them because they've not paid me this month that kind of thing so it was still going on and so this is a historic thing but it's changed throughout time it's adapted it, you know laws were passed Eisenhower in 1959 ratified this law about money can't pass under the table uh, if the public were not made aware that money had changed hands you know mm. you had to declare it but they found loopholes they found ways around that and some people just decided ah fuck it I'll just risk it uh, because the, the, the penalties were so low deal with the fine yeah. anyway yeah I mean Universal got fined 12 million at one point which was 0.2% of their revenue for that year so yeah it, it's something that went on and it played a massive part in shaping the charts and shaping the radio playlists the bands that we now see as the greats of that era I mean bands like Bon Jovi bands like Fleetwood Mac Michael Jackson Michael Jackson Bruce Springsteen mm. they they all had people out there now again want to reiterate that we're not saying the artists had any say in this or any knowledge of this but it was going on en masse and it was helping to create the illusion of a meritocracy yeah, yeah meritocracy mm. and a kind of democratic musical process like people were picking these acts to become the big acts and actually that wasn't exactly what was going on now there's a lot of moving parts there some of these acts very probably would have still been enormous others maybe not and there's certainly a lot of acts we talked a bit about our own feelings on Good Charlotte Good Charlotte appeared in the paperwork for this a lot, a lot, very often. I think actually, certainly in the New York case, more than any other act. Why were they everywhere? Why were they everywhere? And there you go, maybe that's why. Contemporaries that were miles and miles and miles better than them, you know. Yeah. So it's an interesting phenomenon. As we say, throughout history, it has changed and adapted and resurfaced. Uh, There is a way to make money. And organised crime has been involved since well certainly since at least the 50s and 60s there's been an element of that and that uh, still appears to be the case but we're going to get there so in this episode we're going to bring it right bang up to date with the advent of digital music and streaming and Mark is going to walk us through it and I have never been so excited to talk about MP2s in my (laughs) life so Mark uh, have a wee drink of water and take it away 
broadly speaking, we're talking about music streaming manipulation, and it does happen, and it's probably happened to your favourite acts. It may also have happened to your band. <laughs> it's also definitely happened to my least favourite acts. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> true. But I think before we talk about where that came from and how Spotify became the, the vessel for all this, we can need to talk about a little bit about the landscape from which Spotify emerged. Yeah, we need a bit of context, because yeah. as I said, Payola, or Playola as we're calling it now for reasons that will become apparent, it had to adapt and that was a, an ever-evolving landscape, so we, we can't really skip the stages of evolution that might explain some of that, mm-hmm. so maybe take us through that transition. Yeah, so let's talk about the rise of streaming, um, but that kind of really begins with piracy, and piracy is actually quite fundamental to the foundation of Spotify itself, which we'll get to in yeah, a little second. And there's technology as well, mm-hmm. so let's bear in mind contextually that this is broadband suddenly getting rolled out everywhere. Absolutely. Piracy kind of began really as a thing in the late 1990s. It's quite interesting that, you know, the thing that we understand has been the vessel for music. It's the MP3, right? Mm. WAVs, if you're like getting the masters bounced down in your band or whatever, but <laughs> you'll just, you'll convert them to an MP3 so you can actually put them in somewhere WAVs, sensible. Right? if you've got all day to sit and watch that wee bar load. <laughs> exactly. I mean, back in the 1990s, can you imagine how many weeks it would have taken oh my God. to download a WAV? Yeah, well, it would be insane. <laughs> I remember leaving my flatmate's PC running overnight to get one bright eyes mp3 <laughs> one bright eyes mp3 hawaii <laughs> <laughs> hawaii it's a good song yeah to be fair yeah um, so there was a format wars in the 1990s the format wars right? um, much like there was VHS versus Betamax and yeah and, it, and the, the inferior one won yeah, yeah. Well, VHS was the inferior format oh and in this case the superior format won out was MP3 well, so can we just point out that uh, the reason that VHS won was because of pornography? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, wait a minute. So, MP3, a lot of porno in it. Sadly, it's just audio only. But, I mean, I suppose you could listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favourite kind of porn. <laughs> Squelchy stuff. Yeah. Um, so, the MP3 was developed in the late 80s, right, by the Brandenburg Group. They end up getting involved in a format war with Philips. Sounds know? like somebody to be featured on Infowars. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it does, doesn't it? You know Philips, right? Philips are a big... They invented the screwdriver. Invented the loads of things, right? <laughs> but they were they were a major record label at one point, but they ended up falling quite far behind the times and that led to their demise. And Philips, the music arm, ended up getting bought by um, Universal Music Group, eventually further down the line. Um, Remember Philips used to be a, 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 a the go-to reliable brand? Absolutely, yeah. uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and they still make things like kettles and all that. But yeah, basically there was a format war in the early 90s. It was MP2, backed by Philips, and MP3, made by the Brandenburg group who just couldn't get a... They basically just didn't have the money to make people adopt it, right? That's essentially what happened. But like I said, we think of MP3s as being the vessel for music, not MP2s. And how did that happen? Well, at some point in the late 90s, the license for the MP3 expired, so it became open source, well, there's something that's free, people will try and exploit that free certain thing. certain kind of people. Yeah. Uh-huh. The kind of people that would maybe listen to a free podcast and, and not subscribe <laughs> at four fucking pounds a month. Which is, which you're probably getting an NPC right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I'm aware that this is really boring, so let's get into the meat of it, right? Um, you remember downloading MP3s if you're of a certain age. You remember Napster and Kazaa and yep. LimeWire and all that. Well, all the MP3s that you ever downloaded were ripped off of CDs by Wares Groups, which Wares Groups were like essentially little collectors of, of people that would rip music, whether they would go into a store on the day records come out and rip it and upload it, or whether there were some people, um, I'm going to reference Stephen Witt's book, How Music Got Made Again, 
go and read that because there's a really interesting part in it about a guy called Dale Glover who was single-handedly responsible for leaking 8,000 records. Dale or Dale? Dale. Dale. Yeah, because um, he worked at a processing plant for CDs in North Carolina and he literally ripped the masters of some of the biggest ever leaks. Um, um, so it's just, it's worth saying as well, the where's scene, he was a part of it, but it grew out of games as well. It grew out of copying video games and stuff and then it kind of... Expanded into digital music. Yeah. So in 1997, people in America were getting faster and faster internet connections, and they realised that they could take the CDs that they have, put them on MP3s, and have them all on their computer, so they could have like loads and loads of tunes in their computer, basically, right? Um, the first ever song, right, that was pirated and shared on an, on IRC, an MP3, it was "Until It Sleeps" by Metallica. Fuck that! Must have pissed off Lars. Yeah. Um, so that was the first song that was ever uploaded as an MPC to the internet, right? Nice little bit of ephemera, I guess, if you will, um, which will be completely useless to most people, I imagine. Yeah, pub um, quiz. Yeah, probably. Um, but piracy started to grow quite quickly. In 1999, Sean Fanning created Napster. Everybody mm-hmm. remembers Napster. I think Napster's still a thing now, actually. I think it's it a, is, yeah, a yeah. platform that you can it still is, use. Absolutely. And at its peak, it had almost 80 million users. And it got Lars Ulrich fucking raging as well. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when the Osborne released their single Original Prankster from their album Conspiracy 1. They released it deliberately on Napster for free because Lars Ulrich was kicking up shit about Metallica being on it. And they were just basically trolling them back then. But, you know, as that began to happen, piracy was starting to have a huge effect on the record industry. And we've spoken about how 2003 was kind of the inflection point. Sales were dwindling really quickly from year 2000 to 2003. Go online, find a graph. It's pretty catastrophic, right? It collapsed, basically, as a result purely of piracy. You know, in the last episode, I talked a little bit about a guy called Doug Morris and how he was a technophobe and completely averse to technology. He was kind of right because the iPod came out I remember it. it was that sort of like iRobot looking thing that had Snake on it. Yeah. So the iPod came out and it became the first commercially successful MP3 player. So some has existed before that. Mm-hmm. It is interesting though that the iPods played the M4A, they didn't play the MP3. Yeah, exactly. And I just, originally that's right, yeah. And you, had, you basically had to upload them to iTunes and then convert them and put them mm-hmm. on iTunes. So when the iPod started to take off, that's when piracy started to really, really dent the sales of records in America. Like I said in the last episode, Doug Morris, clearly a complete technophobe, was chucking money into various different digital services. All the major record labels were, the big four back then, mm-hmm. were chucking money into these services which would sell MP3s. Mm-hmm. All of them failed except from Just one. a total Hail Mary. Yeah. Like. He was actually phoned by Steve Jobs personally to ask him to lend his back into iTunes and he said no. Eventually he relented and, and said yes after frittering away tens of millions of dollars in services which didn't work. Yeah. Eventually though, Napster etc. gave way to P2P, which was BitTorrent, which is still widely used today. And it actually made it harder to trace on a service like Napster, an MP3 was sitting on one person's computer, you'd share it and another person would download it off you. P2P, little bits of that file would be spread across multiple computers, which means that it's really hard to trace because it's not in one single location. So that kind of gave way to what would eventually become the Pirate Bay. And everybody knows what the Pirate Bay is. It's still going. Hard to access. Yeah, LimeWire, yeah. Pirate Bay. Uh, what else have you got? Like I remember Kick-Ass Torrents. Kick-Ass Torrents. Cat. Yeah. yeah, that was yeah. a good one. 2006, though, uh, a couple of guys had a good idea. A chap called Daniel Eck. You've probably heard of him. He's a guy that owns Spotify. Um, he was the CTO of a company called Stardoll, which is a, brow- a browser-based fashion game. Fuck me. 
And a guy called Martin Lawrenson, um, who is a co-founder of Trade Doubler, which is a global affiliate marketing network. Now, it's interesting that he was in charge of a marketing network. I think it's more interesting the other guy was in charge of a browser-based fashion game. Yeah. <laughs> he was but the, the CTO, yeah. Somehow between them, they, they got Spotify going. They did, yeah. So the beta version of Spotify came, in exist- came into existence in 2009 and actually combined two of those technologies that I just mentioned. They had downloaded all of the tracks that were on the beta version for Spotify off the Pirate Bay before it went offline in Sweden because it, oh, it was taken offline in 2009 and that was when the court case happened and yeah, all that. And yeah. the, there was the Pirate Party in Sweden and they ended up getting people elected to the European Parliament and their whole platform was basically that copyright laws are it's not a, fit for purpose. It's, it's an interesting conversation, but it's, Spotify basically just whipped everything off there. It did, yeah. On, yeah, giant fuck-off servers uh, and then started, I assume, sharing it peer-to-peer with listeners. Yeah, they did, I um, But then eventually when they, they launched it properly they cleaned up their act obviously right in 2010 they, launched ah, they, did, it. they did a relaunch where it yeah. was all above board they launched it in the UK and in Sweden and it was a free service but it was also invite only how did you get an invite? I don't know in the post somebody, I guess somebody sent you fucking Charlie in the Chocolate Factory <laughs> <laughs> a golden ticket to get all the, all the music but it started to really hit the headlines when it was having trouble getting off the ground in America because the big three were a bit reluctant to have all of their music available for free on a streaming service mm-hmm. um, and rightly so because their fucking profits had totally collapsed in the last decade yeah the arse had fallen right out of them yeah That's, so the big three at this time are Universal Music Group Sony Music and Warner Music Group and, and they were reluctant to launch this service even though Spotify were saying it's going to be ad supported so you will be making revenue off of this Warner ended up being the only people that held out Sony and Universal agreed to it and they were happy to go with it um, probably because they were told we'll give you an 18% stake in Spotify as well which must have sweetened the deal quite substantially for them. They also put some terms on how the people would be allowed to listen to one song five times in an hour, and they'd only be allowed to listen to 10 hours of music a month for free in Spotify. That's mad, eh? Yeah. Like, thinking back to those days. At that same time, though, uh, Warner Brothers was up for sale, and Sean Fanning, remember Sean Fanning? Napster. Uh, yeah, um, he had a pal called Sean Parker, who was also an investor in Napster. Was it him wearing a moustache? No, but uh, Sean Parker is played by Andrew Garfield in The Social Network because he was also one of the guys that helped start Facebook. Ah, right, okay. And he was eventually also brought onto the board of Spotify. Mm-hmm. And he's a multi-millionaire by 2011. Uh, and he saw that Warner Brothers Records was up for sale and he's like, I know how to fix this problem that we have. I'll just fucking buy Warner Brothers Records. But there was actually a Russian businessman called Len Blavik, Blavatnik. Uh, Len Blavatnik and I have to pull you up there he's Ukrainian oh, Ukrainian. he's okay. not Russian and as we know in the book he's Russian they are but not that the was, same was like, yeah it was like 8-7 years ago that Stephen Witt's book came interesting out interesting so. by the way that guy Len uh, Blavatnik uh, he's undertaking some interesting ventures uh, he was an ally and business partner of a guy called Oleg Deripaska who's uh, also very heavily sanctioned uh, nefarious operator so he bought Warner Brothers Records and assured uh, Sean Parker that he would clearly wait for Spotify to be a thing. And it was, which, mm-hmm. which was great for music, <laughs> period. <laughs> yeah, so after that, it cleared can the I, way. Can I just interject here? Uh, it's a fucking weird thing to say, but uh, you have the weirdest sympathy for the old dudes that ran the big record labels at the time because they were holding out and holding out and they'd, you know, they'd tried their best to find some other solution with these investments that didn't pan out and the world was just changing and they ultimately had no choice like they, they were fucked like it was like well do you want to do this because you know if you don't you're fucked <laughs> and the, whether or not they got an 18% share I mean that was probably good for their 
their own pockets, but they, they knew that it was bad for music in the long run, but there was literally fuck all they could do. Mm. Technology had changed the world. The, their limits were gone. The water was rising. Uh, it, it's just, it's an odd situation to just imagine the position they were in. You know, because they were probably used to being so fucking powerful and being able to strong arm oh, yeah. their, their way out of any huh. deal or any situation. And then suddenly they're in a situation where it's like, it doesn't matter how loud you shout, mate. People can just swap these things for free now. So you're a fucking dinosaur. And that is fascinating. Mm. That's an interesting point. And I think I'm going to go on a little bit of sidetrack here. But if you're an idealist like me, I guess you could say that on balance, Spotify has been fucking terrible for the music industry. It's been terrible for artists. Royalties are never out of the press at this moment in time. It has had this effect of making it easier than ever to get your music online, but at what cost? Point zero 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 five pence. Yeah, literally <laughs> that cost. at that cost. Yeah. Um, but artists have to use it now. And as consumers, we, we're kind of stuck because we've now become really accustomed to listening to whatever we want, whenever we want. And that, yeah, we're addicted to know, convenience. Yeah, totally. That's it. And and so almost every solution that's presented to us is a solution that requires effort. And that's why, as something of a cynic, you just know it doesn't stand a fucking chance because people are addicted to convenience and... Therefore, even though, yes, there are things we could do that would maybe revitalise music, we're not going to fucking do them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's that's probably a key point, is a lot of the stuff we've spoken about, they could have been fixed. Mm-hmm. You know, it just never was, because it was convenient for, for record labels to pay that money to make their artists popular. Human you know? nature. Yeah. That's the thing, Like as with all these things, we tend to project on nefarious other actors, like ruthless businessmen or executives and stuff, and you're like, well, ultimately though, What's driving all of this is human nature and we've all got that and we're all part of that audience that loves convenience and we're all part of that kind of mentality that would really, ugh, I could do that, but you know what, fuck it, I'm not going to, you know, it's fucking why we've got fucking global warming, yeah. let alone fucking Spotify, you mm-hmm. know, it's like, there are things we can do, we all know that, but we know how to do them <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's much easier to be able to blame someone else for that. Speaking of blaming other people, let's uh, let's, let's get, find somebody. We've got any scapegoats yeah, here. Yeah. So actually, after Spotify's launch and proper in 2011 in America, and then it started to get rolled out across the world, Apple thought they'd have a, a crack, uh, come after the king, basically. Yeah, I mean they're good at a lot of stuff. Yeah. So when Apple Music launched in 2015, that was also happened to be the same year that Spotify launched their Discovery Weekly and editorial playlists, which are, well, the editorial ones are user generated, and they're done by curators unknown who they actually are to the to the general public and their discovery weekly was algorithm driven this is when they started to lean heavily into algorithms being the so let me clarify here so there's one set that are picked by people being like oh this is good editorial yep and then there's another that is algorithmically generated well there's more than one but in 2015 they launched them they launched these editorial playlists and discover weekly at the same time right there's now other ones called release radar which you'll see in Spotify, which is when new tracks come up that Spotify thinks are in the genre you like. Yeah. There's what used to be termed Spotify radio, but it's now what happens when, if an album finishes, for example, then another track plays by another artist, that's Spotify radio. So they started to move towards being more algorithmically driven, which is essentially taking all the data of all their users, analysing it, and then guessing what they think is best for you based on your behaviours on the platform. And they're not the only people that do that. They're the people that do it the best on streaming platforms, but, you know, TikTok's curation algorithm is is by far and away one of the best that's ever been invented because it just seems to be almost psychic. You know, the the way that it recommends content to people is pretty scary, man. Yeah, I mean, it it goes back to that kind of Facebook statistic. I I can't remember off the top of my head, but, you know, if they have 
you know, 50 points of data, they know you better than a colleague. If they have 100 points of data, they know you better than a friend. 200 points of data, they know you better than a, a member of your family. Mm-hmm. And 300 points of data, they know you better than yourself. Yeah. And so you think about just how many points of data these various apps and sites have on you. Uh, yeah, especially people like TikTok. I'm going to take a second to dispel a, a myth which has always, always bugs me. And we've covered it before. Um, and I've said it a bunch of times in this podcast, but your phone is not listening to you, right? When you get adverts that are recommended to you, your phone isn't listening to you. You've already given it the data it needs to recommend that yeah. to you. And that is more terrifying to and me that's, that's than your phone listening to you. Yeah, yeah, you know? that's that's what we don't... Rec- I mean, it's listening to you in a much more uh, metaphorical yeah, way. Uh-huh. But we don't realise that we're, we're inputting that data and that it can draw those conclusions. And then there's it's kind of coloured by that human bias... But yeah, Spotify's algorithm remains the best in the, in, the, in the streaming service. But yeah, the thing that really made that kind of apparent in the public eye is when Apple Music launched, they essentially said, look, our, our stuff is created by humans, not by algorithms. The fact of the matter is, both platforms do both. They, they also made a big song and dance about the fact they had radio stations, which which I remember Beats Radio, I don't think it's called Beats Radio anymore, but Zane Lowe still got his own radio show on Apple Music. So I guess that's a point of difference which they would necessarily need to make to be a, an effective competitor in the marketplace. They need mm-hmm. to offer something different. Yeah, But the fundamental nuts and bolts are still the same. It's still curation, it's still algorithms that are making... The playlists, which are the whole reason that we're sitting here just now. You know... <laughs> Who Zane Lowe really likes Mm. Queens of Stone Age does doesn't he I just said that so we could put a bit of music in yeah is that alright I love that I love it <laughs> um, so all of that to say you know Spotify is everywhere it's pervasive I'll go back home after this and I'll put on my PS5 and there will be a Spotify in there and I can listen to my Spotify whilst I play a computer game these level of integrations are completely from a marketing purpose just absolute genius and no other music service has that so how, that's how they became better than the rest they get better at the tech they get better at the marketing for a big for a big tech company that are surprisingly nimble as well, you know, and in the marketplace which is really competitive, being nimble and getting there first is really what makes you the biggest game in town. So combining that with the 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 sort of curators musical nouse as well, you know, is what makes them a really attractive proposition to people that want to get their music heard because you want to get your songs into the algorithm, but you also want to get them on the playlists that are basically made by kingmakers. Mm-hmm. And I will go on in a second. Talk about how the kingmakers actually work, because I think that is by far and away the, probably the most fascinating piece in all of this. So, playlists supplanted radio and TV as the place that record companies were going to promote and break artists, right? That began in 2015 with a Discovery Weekly. Once they'd introduced this personalised, sorry, quote-unquote personalised, this algorithmically driven, but it's personalised to you. Once they'd introduced this personalised like way of serving music to people, people in the, the music industry started to realise there's probably a game to play here. This started to allow Spotify to tailor song recommendations to every user and it opened the gates for music discovery at scale. 
it just dwarfs radio. It dwarfs TV. You yeah. know, you can get it on demand. And as you say, it's so much more nimble. It's so much more targeted and specific. Yeah. By 2016, which is just one year later, over half of the listening in Spotify was already driven by playlists, especially a Discover Weekly playlist. Around about the same period, uh, the human curated flagship playlist started to come out. The, one of the biggest being Rap Caviar, which is really well known for breaking some of the biggest hip hop acts in the world. Mm. It is a playlist with millions of followers. Such as? Um, such as Lil Nas X. Heard of him? Old Town Road. Nope. Was on Rap Caviar. Pretty much a lot of the newer hip-hop artists will have been in that at some point. New hip-hop artists will be fucking chomping at the bit to get on it as well. All these shifts in technology and algorithms and all that was all enabled by Spotify having enough users and data and power to yeah. extract this, you know? So I guess to sum that we bit up, the key factors are advanced personalization algorithms emerging around 2015, the growth of flagship human playlists like Rap Caviar and the mainstream of music streaming overall were all responsible for why Spotify has become the platform of choice for any artist that wants to get broken. Yeah, any. I mean, they reckon now that Spotify playlists drive over 30% of the total listening on the whole platform, right? So 30% of all music listened to on there comes from playlists? Just from playlists, yeah. That's not talking about the algorithmic stuff, which is in your Discover Weekly and your radio, which just comes on after something's finished, yeah. you know. So this gives them a major influence. Like, I think any record label back in the payola days would have killed for a 30% audience share. Mm-hmm. You know, they would have absolutely killed for it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's strange to me because I'm someone that very much uses Spotify to hear albums by bands. I don't spend a lot of time on playlists. I find that a bit frustrating, but I can believe it. You know, and certainly in the context of bars and cafes and things like that, Spotify playlisting is dynamite. You know, if we've got a band on that we're promoting and we want to put music on before the show, it used to be the bane of your life. You'd walk into, I don't know, you'd walk into a Mashuga gig and the fucking sound engineer, who could be anybody, starts playing Duran Duran or or fucking worse than Duran Duran, you know, starts playing Seal. (laughs) I mean, that's, we're picking good acts here, actually. Yeah, Um, but they're they're totally in Congress. (laughs) Starts starts playing Space. The British indie <laughs> band Before Meshuggah gig Wow Whereas at least now You can just be like Alright Meshuggah playlist Meshuggah radio Yeah You know And there's that thing Where you have this Brilliant algorithm That curates it It's a fucking dream actually mm-hmm. In a lot of cases Yeah so You know getting on a Spotify A top Spotify playlist Can lead to millions of streams For a new artist And it's, it's true right um, The artist Lau Gained 2 million followers After he was added to a playlist Like a spotlight The water hits me an extra cold to shake the words from my mouth Though I know that no one's listening His song, The Other, was added to a playlist Two playlists actually, one called Mint, one called New Music Friday And that led to an explosion in streaming figures for him And it made him a household name in America I've never heard of him, but he's got fucking loads of streams And he's quite well known now, yeah, over there in 2017, over 75% of tracks in Spotify's today's top hits playlists were from acts without radio airplay. That's really interesting. Yeah. It is, isn't it? Yeah, just completely bypassing that old tech 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. And compare that to radio, there's like new acts only make up about 35% of the airplay on mainstream radio. That includes like Radio 1. So those A-list and B-list playlists are, are going to be made up mostly of new acts, but there will be some still obviously chucking a lot of old ones as well on the radio. So yeah, Spotify playlists, like I said, have just disrupted traditional modes of promotion. And they hold a major influence today, so that infiltration can really break acts pretty much overnight. Yeah, yeah. You know? Very, very sudden, isn't it? Yeah, they, I mean, they, all of that is just to kind of back up this argument. Like, if you're an old cunt like us, right, we go, oh, playlist, like, what, 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 are you talk, what are you even talking about? It's like, well, industry. Get with it. Yeah, the industry shows that that Come is on, the way. Come on, you cats. Right? Uh-huh. Get down with this tech. Yeah. So, you want some examples of some a huge playlists and some acts that have... Um, Can you wait? Cool. Yeah, you can chuck in some music here. So, <laughs> um, so some of the biggest playlists, I guess. Um, today's top hits has got twenty eight million followers. That sounds good. The top current songs and spots. Anything that has yeah. top in it, I know I'm yeah. gonna like that. Rap caviar. I've already mentioned it. It's got three point five million pop followers. Who would I find in rap caviar? Um, Lil Nas X. Already <laughs> <laughs> played him. Uh, I don't actually know. Who else does the hip hop? Anybody that releases a new hip hop song will be on it. Killer Mike, he's got a new album coming out. Ready to play Tim as well. be on there. Oh man. So, other than Lil Nas X and Killer Mike, I don't listen to the playlist. Mate, you so. listen to fucking hip hop. Not, not, obviously, not new hip hop. Just right? name any other hip hop artist. I'm not going to know. Um, Eminem. Fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> he, would, he would be on there, though, because he would be. He would uh, be of course, he yeah. will be. Viva Latino uh, and Rock Classics each have seven and five. Rock million. Classics, I can guess. I mean, that's yeah. just giving me a chance to play Kiss, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much. Um, so Lil Nas X, his breakout hit, like I've said, Old Town Road, was added to the Mint playlist in March 2019. He later was number one in the charts, so it went on to be the longest number one, longest running number one in the Billboard chart history, and it just catapulted him to success. That's fucking mental, that Lil Nas X, who I, I couldn't, you showed me a photo, wouldn't know it, mm-hmm. nothing. I'm, 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 and that's maybe indicting my own ignorance there, but fuck is Lil Nas X, mm-hmm. longest know. running number one mm-hmm. of all time. Fuck off. Uh, another it one. It should have been, and it should have remained, Everything I Do, I Do It For You by Brian Adams. <laughs> and that should have been just how it was to the end of music. We're not that far away from the end of civilization. We could have kept Brian Adams in that spot. <laughs> Yeah, we could have, but I mean, what we could do? Fuck's sake, yeah, we only had to go but another decade. Maybe, <laughs> if we're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, another one who had really big success, the you like this, is Billie Eilish. Her song Ocean Eyes was added to the Pop Rising playlist in 2016 when she was just 14. She has since gone on to win seven Grammys as a result of her Spotify push. Grammys are a certain sign of quality. Well, the people that are paying the bills and writing the checks, it certainly is, isn't mm. it? Billie Eilish was actually heavily pushed at that time. And uh, of all people, Katy Perry passed her up for inclusion on her unsub record imprint 
Oh wow! Yeah, Katy Perry had an imprint on Capital, which was her mother label, if you will, mm. uh, and she just totally patched the Billie Eilish song. <laughs> she was like, ah, "I don't fancy it. That's going nowhere." There you go. That's uh, and she she speaks about it. She was doing a spoken word show somewhere recently, and that was one that was part of it. It's really interesting. Um, Spend so a lot of time watching Katy Perry's spoken word, <laughs> watching her fucking TED talks. <laughs> That's those samples back to the asteroids, guys. We got Katy Perry here to explain them to you. <laughs> She's kind of riffing it for thirteen minutes and then squirt cream in everyone. <laughs> Um, so yeah, there's a strong cut. <laughs> don't mention Russell Brand. Don't do not mention Russell 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 Brand. Russell Brand. So yeah, there's a strong correlation between getting added to a Spotify a key Spotify playlist like some of the ones I've mentioned, and then seeing growth in streams, popularity, and broader music industry recognition. It's exactly what people want. It's pretty interesting. It's a very sellable feature, but the fact that it's not for sale. Yeah. Is the kicker here For these big fucking labels And such like That yeah. we used to be able to buy that I know we weren't meant to But we used to be able to get A wee fucking bag of Charlie Into his pocket mm. And he would just let us do it anyway And now they fucking can't Because it's a fucking algorithm Yeah so I mean A signal gets Do algorithms do coke? No Not yet Not yet Imagine when they become Maybe session. Skynet did coke Maybe that's <laughs> That was the whole problem man like just <laughs> Got really aggro Yeah <laughs> <laughs> These guys These fucking guys man These fucking humans man I'm getting really paranoid They're going to shut me off Right fuck it Kill them all <laughs> um, So yeah There's a direct signal boosting effect Happening here right That's basically what we're yeah. saying I'm not going to underline that point any further, um, but I'll give you some other examples of the Kid Laroi, the song Stay. Never fucking heard of the Kid Laroi. You might have I heard thought that was a typo, to you, be honest. You might have heard the song kicking about. That, became, that was in today's top hits in 2021. It became his first number one in America and it catapulted him to global fame. Um, Lewis Capaldi, someone you love, was added to today's top hits in 2019. It subsequently reached number Dude, one. Lewis? Yep, in the UK and US after being added to that playlist. Rit Momney. <laughs> Rit Momney. Really? I mean, who would take a famous person's name and swap the first letters around and try and pass that off as a fucking band name? Who in their right mind would do that, Mark? <laughs> I mean, will never be in this show. Never be in this show. Um, but yeah, uh, her song "Put Your Records On" was added to a playlist called "Your Coffee Break" in 2020, and that drove so many streams that she ended up breaking the Hot 100. Your Coffee Break sounds like a pish playlist. It does. And it sounds like it's probably for so um, if you go online and have a quick look at some of the biggest playlists you can see that over 400 playlists have over 1 million followers right but their combined influence in each of those playlists for every single genre is utterly staggering and like can, I, can I just I, I, I don't mean to disrupt you but I do think it's interesting referring back to the first episode we did see some of those acts that you were rhyming off mm-hmm Let's put a pin in this because they're also the names Doja Cat, yeah, she's Dua Lipa. Dua Lipa. They are people whose names came up in the Paola thing that Rolling Stone yep. exposed. And so what you have there are artists whose at least their management or the people around them have already got previous when it comes to, you know, subverting the rules a bit to try and push their acts into prominence. And yep. that may well play a part later. 
In the back, in the background of all this, is that there was also in twenty seventeen it, it kind of emerged that it was a, an inflation of artists' streaming numbers on Spotify, and there were all these artists who were doing things like meditation music and. You know, but um, this is something that I think we touched on in Slave to the Algorithm. Yeah, we did, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Um, that was a, at the time in 2017, that was attributed to Spotify, that they were doing it themselves. They were paying artists to make these songs and they were putting the songs on the playlist and then they were inflating them and then they were getting a, basically a kickback. You know, when you think about it, like logically, like the, the effort versus um, revenue involved means it's probably completely nonsense. Yeah, right? so th- this is this is my issue with that. And I just, sorry, I just want to maybe explain that for folk that have not picked up first time round. So loads and loads and loads of look-alikey, sound-alikey tracks started to appear. You'd have entire mm. ambient playlists and there would be maybe a hundred different artists on it. But when you went to their artwork... One song. It would be like one or two tracks. The artwork would be clearly either AI generated or a similar sort of landscapey abstract picture. There's a couple of really good investigations into this. There's on a YouTube. good article on the Verge as well about it. Yeah, there's some there's some good stuff about this where people really went into depth. I think actually the person that wrote the Verge one did a, a video as well, and you can see that hardly any of the acts in these playlists were real, but they had millions upon millions of of listens. So the suggestion was that they were inflating these tunes, pushing them under people's noses, and then scooping up revenue in the back end of that. I mean that that seems perfectly feasible, but my uh, reservation is it's quite conspiratorial. I think the company Spotify did that. It's such a small income, it's such a small bonus in in relation to what they are actually worth, and it does seem a little bit far fetched to me that that is a sort of mandated policy. What doesn't seem far fetched though is that. For example, people working within Spotify or around Spotify saw the opportunity to make pocket money and it could be quite easily that there was no particular stipulation that said, well, you can't make music. Yeah, I mean... And mm. and they were like, well, why don't I just fucking populate these playlists with like 50 acts that are all automatically generated yeah. with this tedious automatically generated music that will be on in the back of a fucking crystals shop mm-hmm. and make an absolute fortune of pocket money from it. That to me seems a likelier scenario. Well, the Verge article does say that the investigation that they did was that it was resp- all these tracks were written, they were all, I say written, they were all made by AI and they were done by a company called Epidemic Sounds, mm-hmm. which are also based in Sweden, which is, I think, why people where yeah, people got the, that's the correlation. There was also you know. a proximity thing where it seemed like, you know, this is a bit of a fucking coincidence that this is happening. It, it could, hey, it could be. It could be that something comes out that says that Spotify saw an opportunity because I know a lot of these companies are overvalued anyway, but I'm inclined to think that it's more opportunism on the part of people around the organisation than it is some kind of secret policy from within. Yeah. The reason that this is important and it's going to feed right into the next section is because immediately when when you think about these songs, right, are being created by AI and they're going they're being put on playlists which are then getting millions and millions and millions of listens, right? And it is the most beige stuff, right? It starts to make you ask questions about the integrity of algorithmic curation and human curation, right? Mm-hmm. Because I can't imagine anybody actually actively enjoys that kind of music, right? But getting over a million plays on Spotify is going to get you thousands of pounds. Mm-hmm. Not not loads unless it's happening on a regular basis, right? If you're getting a million millions of plays... if you have 50 acts that are yeah, doing it. Uh-huh, then you're, you're definitely making a decent income out of that, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, I think as we kind of illustrated with the first episode as well, this is not driven by the audience entirely. Certainly that's a big part of it, but there is a two-way street there, and that's why Paola happened, because they knew 
if they raised the profile of certain acts, it would create demand, it would create an impression of popularity, which would in turn feed into your instincts to want to be up to speed and part of something. So what we're, what we're starting to get at or drive at here is that when songs like this get platformed in such a big way, you know, tens of millions of plays per song for thousands of playlists, it starts to have a noticeable, small but noticeable impact. It's not a negligible uh, impact that it's having on the kind of popular consciousness that, you know, it's a non-zero factor that is it starts to become worthy of acknowledging because whatever is driving that process could well also be driving something that's a lot more mainstream popular. Yeah, all of everything you said there really just sets the stage for like further scrutiny and the playlists and, and the potential for manipulation. So let's talk about manipulation. Should we talk about man- manipulation? There's I a fucking love numbers. talking about manipulation. I know you do. So how does that actually work? What do we mean by that? We've set the stage. We know how Spotify became the biggest in the world doing it through the use of great technology and great marketing. What happens when people decide to manipulate that technology? I just assumed that you meant little robots come into your house and put Ed Sheeran on your computer while you're sleeping. Man, you imagine? I'd be so <laughs> raging, the little robots. <laughs> or Bono puts his album on your device when you buy it. Touchy topic, that one, isn't it? <laughs> um, so basically, Spotify states that getting on their curated playlist is quite simple, right? Mm-hmm. Every single time an artist uploads a song to their distribution channel of choice, Examples being DistroKid, CD Baby, yeah. that kind of thing. So yeah, for, for the audience, if you're not in a band, you can't just put a song on Spotify. You have to go through a kind of broker, which is like a sort of digital music distributor, and they upload it to Spotify. Mm. But once it's on there, you can claim your artist profile, like officially, like, hey, I am... This artist, yeah. Mm-hmm. Bobby Whackjob, mm-hmm. yeah. the, the, the amazing rapper yeah. out of Glasgow. And I would like to claim this song. And then what you then do is you put it forward for consideration yeah. for one of these You basically playlists. pitch it. So you yeah. get 500, a space of 500 words to pitch a song to curators. Um, there's a whole bunch of videos on Spotify's YouTube and on their website, which gives you hints and tips on how, how to make the most of that and how you can do that. If you're an artist that's releasing music, then you should you should be doing that anyway. Yeah, because it can really make or break it can a really track. Make, we've just discussed it, it can really make or break a track, you know. I'm sure we're going to find out that the odds are horrible, but if you are one of the lucky people, it can make a big, big dent. Well, you kind of spoke about the odds in the last episode, right? Mm-hmm. So there's 60,000 new songs that get released on Spotify every single year. No, every single day, sorry. Day. Every single day. <laughs> um, yeah, so you gave me this in advance. That means that curators added about 150,000 tracks by new artists to the playlists every single year. Which Spotify are really proud of, by the way. That's brand new acts that have never been playlisted Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, you're back of the fag packet maths. Uh, That means that every artist has about a 0.6% chance of being added to an editorial playlist in a year. Yeah, so... mm -hmm. Like, uh, basically almost half a percent of a chance in a full year of pitching. Yeah, so it seems like it's a meritocracy. It seems like it's democratic. Just give us your song, we'll listen to it, and then we'll put it on our playlist. The sheer fucking numbers, though, play a part there. Yeah, definitely. Now, a lot of artists won't pitch their songs because they won't know how to do yeah, it. Yeah, so it will know? come down. That's I, mm. Absolutely, that's like... That a number very, will go up, but it will be higher than 0.6%. Yeah. Probably not by much. Maybe it's... Probably still in single percentage numbers, I don't know. I was going to say, let's, let's be generous and double it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so if that doesn't work, then what do you do? Because we've just discussed how playlists are really important for artists getting traction. Because playlists can translate not just into music sales, but can also translate into fans. You know, booking agents will book tours based on where artists are more popular on Spotify. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. they'll just do that they'll see which cities because you can get access to yeah, all that data so on the back end again for the non-band audience they'll go into the back end of that and they'll look at the maps of where you're really getting a lot of plays so you're maybe getting loads of plays in Paris you know, so it's like, fuck, we need to make sure they go to Paris. Getting loads of plays in Japan, right? We need to get in touch with an agent in Japan, that kind of thing. The tech has kind of eliminated some of the speculative nature of touring. You're now more able to, you know, avoid risk. Yeah, so Spotify has been really good at also making it easier for artists to know where to go. Um, so if you do get on one of those playlists and you do start to get big, then it can make a huge difference. And a lot of artists are seeking to get onto, if not one of the Spotify editorial playlists, and one of the many other playlists which have hundreds of thousands of listeners that are yeah. just, just run by people like you or I. But if you can't get in one of those editorial playlists, then what do you do? Uh, you've got three options, basically. You can do it the old school way, which is just grind like fuck. Hit social media, do the ads tour like a bastard, get a PR company involved, do it the old-fashioned way, and eventually you'll be rewarded with streams as well as merchandise sales and touring and playing with all the good bands. Fucking like, salt of the earth, mate. Yeah. Salt of the earth. All right. Came up the good way. Pay these dues. Pay these dues. There's a, a slightly dodgy, I think, option, but legit. Well, if you want success quite quickly. Everybody wants success quite quickly. Yep. Uh-huh. Welcome to 2023. So you'll not only employ a PR company, but you can employ companies who will pitch your song to these curators, these humans like you and I who have influential playlists, to get them to include you on it. And that will be run as a promotions campaign. And these, these people can be quite expensive. You're talking hundreds and close to a thousand pounds for for some for just like really short campaigns. Yeah, like a, a short campaign on a single tune for even a, a fairly small level band can easily be a grand. Yeah, and using companies like Sound Campaign or Playlist Push, they're expensive for a reason. You know, they have networks and good contacts. It's like when you get a PR person as well. You know, they have contacts. That's why you're, yeah. that's what you're buying, right? Yeah, we're, we're not saying that there's no reason for these people or that they're fucking somehow conning people. They do provide the service and yeah. some of them are quite good at what they do. But there's a key factor which differentiates them between the next service we'll talk about and that is guaranteed plays. Mm-hmm. You could drop a grand on one track and send it to Sound Campaign and it might never get in a playlist because it might just be shit. Yeah. <laughs> Can't guarantee it. Or it might not be shit. It might be amazing and you just might be like me and just incredibly ahead of your time and nobody gets it yet. Nobody gets it, yeah. That's also possible, you know. So basically what you're doing there is you're buying playlist consideration. You're not buying playlist placement, you're buying consideration. And that is stressed very heavily Mm -hmm. because in the Spotify terms and conditions, it is basically against them. You'll get kicked off the platform or banned or streams removed. Because it has to be, because that is now... A direct correlation with Paola mm-hmm. Where it's like You cannot definitely pay To get on this playlist Or this radio playlist mm-hmm. Effectively in the old days uh, lingo You can pay To have a fighting chance To be pitched to them And be considered But they cannot guarantee it Because that goes against the rules Yeah Or there's a third way Which is where you can pay for Guaranteed playlist placement um, Smiley face Smiley face with a wink. <laughs> um, if you want explosive growth completely out of nowhere. Aubergine. Aubergine. <laughs> if you want an aubergine. Eggplant, just Eggplant. for the American Oh listeners. yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Should we call them, we'll call them platforms, right? There's lots of platforms out there who will promise you guaranteed plays and you'll give them money. And it's usually compared to like the ones in option two back up there. It's nowhere near that amount of money. It's usually quite a lot less and they will give you tens if not hundreds of thousands of of plays on Spotify yeah so again you are looking at this going oh I can pay a thousand pounds to be considered for a playlist 
Or I can pay this guy 50 bucks, maybe not even 50 bucks, 20 bucks, and he's going to get me 10,000 listens. That's, uh, that's an, well, I'll just go for that guy. Yeah. Uh-huh. And you're like, I wonder why that's such a difference in price. Yeah. <laughs> what a brilliant idea. The reason that the, the way that, that works is, is basically there's two ways that this works, but essentially it's, it's just automated, right? First way is you get bot farms or click farms involved. Bot farms. Yeah. Welcome to the IRA and not the, not the sexy Irish IRA, but the, <laughs> the, the, the nasty, the bad guys. <laughs> the nasty, the bad guys. Yeah, 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 because there's obviously a good IRA and a bad IRA. Um, but no, the Russian one. And bot farms are a very topical thing. Bot farms don't just work in music. They work in influence and political campaigns. They work in influence and propaganda around wars. They work in just generally confusing your parents about COVID. Yep, that's true. They do. And immigration yeah. policy and Mr. Potato Head. Yeah. Bot farms are turned to literally yeah. everything. And if you want to go away and learn how to do it, you can go away and make one yourself. But what you're paying for when you pay more money is, is, an, is an increasing level of sophistication. Mm-hmm. Of obfuscation as well. That's what you're paying mm-hmm. for, right? So you could go away and make a bot that plays your song on Spotify X amount of times. You can do that yourself. If you pay a little bit more and get somebody good to do it, then they will randomise the IP address, which means it can come from literally anywhere in the yeah. world. So instead of like 5,000 plays from your house, these people will use maybe a VPN and yep. you'll get 5,000 plays from 5,000 different houses mm. or, you know, virtual houses. Yeah. And there's a whole range of things you can do. The point is, by the way, can I just say that's to try and get round the detection services which have now been put in place by the, not just Spotify, but other groups. You know, they try to monitor these behaviours. Um, you know, I can maybe actually just jump in here with an example of this because I watched a really interesting interview uh, by, of all people, Michael Kenneth Williams. Uh, Omar Walken. Omar Walken. From the fucking wire. So he, uh, rest his soul, uh, before he passed away, worked for Vice doing these short interview kind of documentary things and he met with a guy called Chad Focus. Chad Focus. Motherfucker of a name, isn't it, <laughs> man? Wow, I'm actually kind of jealous that I didn't come up with that one. Can put some music in here? The sound of Chad Focus. Yeah, it means <laughs> Chad Focus is an actual musician, so yeah, I'll put that in. But really, Chad Focus should sound like this. I'm sure we all agree that's what Chad Focus should sound like. Um, but Chad Focus proudly declares as you subordinate, so he's a, he's yeah. a hip hop artist, right? He is not alone uh, in calling them a necessary evil. Uh, he kind of sees it as a justifiable grift to get out of the limited opportunities he was presented with as an African American man in mm. Baltimore. The lines, I think, are blurred a bit between legit. And fraudulent schemes in this guy's mind um, Which is fair enough You know, I understand there's an ambiguity about it And he's very pragmatic in his assessment He says that major labels do this routinely He is adamant this is standard fucking practice Well, there is a really good article in the Rolling Stone Where they actually speak to a guy who works at a music marketing company uh, And he admits to basically using these services to give their major label artists Some of which he says are quite well known His exact quote is, a little push Mm. 
Uh, well, the thing about Chad is he began as a programmer and a coder, not as a musician. And because he knew how to code and program things like botnets, he saw the opportunity to use his technical knowledge to actually break into music. He just saw how poorly monitored and how easy it would be to, to turn his skills to that. And so he became a musician from then. I mean, I'm sure he was into it. But that was when he was like, I can actually do this. And so he got into the charts in just a matter of months. Uh, he ended up doing collabs with people like T-Pain and Lil Mo, like names, actual mm -hmm. names. And another way he tried to game the system was via live shows. Because once he started making waves, he was getting onto these bigger bills. So he did a big show with someone called Lil Baby, who I'm not familiar mm -hmm. with, but a reasonable a clout. Niggas ain't what they be talking about, so I switched on my coupe. Acting like you love me, knowing this flaw, so I'm gonna fake it too. What else am I supposed to do? Where are my surroundings? Don't fuck with y'all, don't come around me. Baby switched up, how that sound? Like a nigga in this business, you can't name something I did flaw, I'm a dime would have been rap caviar for sure yeah and uh, basically Chad Focus uh, used a botnet to buy the entire allocation of tickets for that show which he then scalped his own <laughs> tickets and made a quarter of a million okay, just on. on that show yeah. so he sold out the show entrepreneur <laughs> and then sold it on and he fucking fully convinced he's a fucking genius and at that moment you're like this guy might be a bit of a fucking genius. <laughs> like, that's that's pretty incredible. Um, but that was enabled by working his way up. Well, I say working his way up, just shooting his way up like this so quickly, using these botnets, immediate fame, immediately on these bills. People are still trying to get their fucking bearings. They're like, who is this guy? Why is he suddenly doing this show? Oh my God, his show's sold out. Oh my God, he's just made a quarter of a million in a night by doing this fucking game. And by the way, talking about detection, he talks in that show about how he had to program, for example, his botnet each different IP would wait six minutes to buy a ticket overnight to avoid detection as a fraudulent purchase because apparently Ticketmaster and people like that had like a five-minute limit mm. that they used to detect. Anyway, it's an industrialised level of scalping enabled oh, yeah. by this technology. And, uh, I mean, a lot of shows that sell out, he maintains this is what is happening. Mm. So you see promoters amazed, oh my God, my show's selling out. And he's like, well, why the fuck do you think that's happening? And Digital Music News actually ran a story uh, accusing Live Nation and Ticketmaster of routinely doing this on shows, especially shows by artists where they wanted to, you know, convey the image of demand, sell the show out. Just buy the tickets, sell the show out, because that's the image of this artist. They're so fucking popular. You know, and again, we're back into Piola in a different way. Mm -hmm. You're creating the illusion of demand and popularity in the minds of the audience. And then the audience are like, fucking hell, like last night's show sold out in like an hour. I'm going to try and get one for tomorrow. I don't even know who this is, but they must be hot. I mean, this is an incredible bit of entrepreneurship, as you say. Um, it did, I think, backfire on them a bit because... I understand that he ended up in jail because the original botnet that he set up, I think he used his boss's credit card <laughs> to fund that. He may have fallen afoul of the authorities. Yeah. <laughs> but the, 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 the point remains that he's playing that. He's just used his own tech. As you say, you could build your own botnet. And if you did it well enough, if you don't do it well, you're going to get caught because there are detection systems there. But if you do it well enough, you can get away with it for at least long enough to make a really big fucking dent. Yeah, and essentially, what Chad Focus is kind of—I love saying that name, man. It's, it's what he's kind of what he's kind of proven a little bit there is like that. The third way can work; it just often doesn't work. So you're usually just throwing your money away, and you're not really getting very much out of it. Because, well, so let's go back to those three options: tour like a bastard, do it the old-fashioned way, 
The option number two, employ a legit company to put you up for complete consideration with their networks. Or option number three, the Chad Focus. We'll call it the Chad Focus way. All you're trying to do if you're doing a Spotify marketing campaign is to push your song into the algorithm to such a point where you reach like a critical mass where it starts to just basically get recommended to people organically. Mm-hmm. Whatever that means. Yeah, it's, it starts to pop up on other playlists and it yeah. pops up in those ones and therefore you're now starting to exponentially expand your reach yeah. thanks to that initial injection. A little bump, yeah. yeah. You know, and uh, the editorial curators of Spotify, they have access to the back end of Spotify which actually shows, I believe, how popular a song is. So if if you put a song up for playlist consideration, right, and uh, and it doesn't get picked, it always says that a curator could still put it on a playlist if they rec- if they if they see it. So that's also what you're kind of doing. If it starts popping up in their algorithm and they start to look in the back end and seeing popularity happening, they'll be like, oh, that should definitely be in my huge one million follower playlist that I curate for Spotify because it's clearly hot. Like you said, it's exactly the same as as what Chad Focus was doing with the tickets, you know. I think I'd, I'd like to use a second example here because there are nuances to this and um, there's a YouTube channel called No Labels Necessary and basically uh, the two guys running it are music marketers that is that is their job, they work in hip hop largely and they know their shit and they have a really interesting take on this um, first of all when they were discussing this, there's one episode in particular that talks about bots in a lot of detail and they say that for a lot of people it's just part of the game and levelling up for smaller acts, mm. getting a foot in the ladder like it's fair game it's like we don't have a record label we don't have a platform I come from the middle of nowhere like I'm great at what I do but I'm never going to get that chance and so I don't care if it feels like a little bit wrong I'm going to try and get myself just that a little bit of momentum and then hopefully that's enough that someone notices me peeking out from the crowd and I get going and quite quite often what happens in fact frequently what happens is that those listens are then audited later on and removed, removed uh-huh. because they detect that they were not real listens yeah I mean they used the analogy that this is the uh, I'm just doing it to get through college perspective yeah. you know the, the, the stripper thing yeah. and then a lot of these acts though once they get into that habit find it hard to kick it it's the promise isn't it it's yeah. at the end of the rainbow or whatever you know it's the promise of something the goal is just within reach and I can see it from here if I use this path to get there yeah but the thing is a lot of these folks say I'm just going to do it this time but then they're like oh I'm just going to do it again and then you know maybe it'll work this time you, it, maybe it'll work this time or mm. I like the look of those numbers I like looking at that track and makes seeing me, those makes fucking, you feel good yeah seeing yeah. those fucking seven digits on, underneath that track and all that kind of stuff I can relate to that I'll, we'll talk about that in a sec yeah <laughs> um, and they've got a, you know a dispassionate and fairly pragmatic take on this another point they made which I think is quite interesting is that for some acts sheer size is their brand there are some acts that they cannot be seen to have a song below a certain level because mm-hmm. I mean so much. It's like, a vanity metric. We got a market and we call it a, ma- a vanity metric. Yeah, that's what it is. And so much. Let's be. We're talking about hip hop here, and mm-hmm. so much of that genre is braggadocio anyway. It's certainly like gangster rap and things like that. So it's braggadocio, and so the numbers are absolutely intrinsic to the, the the value of that product and to the, the the continuing. You know, people are only impressed by this guy or this woman. If they stay where they are, if they are the mm. big dog and they have to be there, I can't fucking yeah. relate to that. I come from a musical uh-huh. background where that's completely alien, but it's it's that's a pragmatic observation. Yeah, I mean, can I just say, right, when I have seen some of these dodgy playlists in action, they are nine times out of ten, oh, probably seven times out of ten, it's mostly hip hop artists that are mm-hmm. on it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's an interesting thing. I love hip hop. So. Yeah, I'll, I'll come back to that, right? Um, they also said that below a certain level, 
as marketers, as music marketers, they're like real engagements are absolutely vital. Totally. 100%. Even even if you then stack bot plays on top of it. They're like, so the people that are at the lower level, they can use bots to supplement if they want to somehow turn heads, but they need to have an underlying real listenership. Yeah, so it's the, exactly the thing that we seek to do as artists, that every artist should be seeking to do, is building a community. Yeah. That's that's always going to be the foundation. There's yeah. also a very practical tech reason, because under the videos and the, the, the comments sections, the real comments help defeat the suspicion around the bots. You know, they, they talked about like certain ratios, you know, they, like 3 to 4% comments under a video. So let's say the video gets viewed, you know, 10 million times, but you've only got 4,000 comments. It's like, that yeah. something seems pretty off Engagement about rate, basically, that's yeah, what that's called. Yeah, and so having that underlying authentic listener base, and also the nature of the comments, the content of the comments can actually be... And you, this is, you were talking about sophistication. The, the more you pay for one of these services, the more sophisticated the execution. So you might actually get from one of these services guaranteed 5% very believable comments. In fact, there are even services out there where rather than it being a botnet, it is actual people that do yeah. it. That's what I was going to say. Like, so one of the one of the services that I come across in their explanation of how they do it is that they incentivize listeners. So from what I understand, they basically give you an app, they give people an app and then they just listen to songs or do a thing and they're rewarded with things like Amazon gift cards or I don't know, whatever, you know. Um, so yeah, you can incentivize real people to do it. It doesn't make them engaged though, that's the thing. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, they, I mean, going back to that braggadocio thing, they were talking, use Travis Scott as an example. They said like, Travis Scott definitely uses these botnets on his videos, but people only care when the other parts of the artist are subpar. So Travis Scott using these to inflate his image is to them passable because the other parts of the product are of a certain quality. I don't know the first fucking thing about Travis Scott, but they're like, as long as he's doing it, and the other parts of it, it's not just absolute junk. He kind of gets away with it because it kind of it kind of suits. So yeah, I mean, some labels are clearly using botnets to protect the reputation of their acts. I don't think it's labels; it'll be managers. Well, managers. That small, Rollstone article small, says it's managers. Small, small labels though, especially small hip hop labels. It's kind of what these guys were saying. Like they don't use it. For example, like they're a marketing agency, but they were like, it's not to say we would never use it. In, in the right circumstances um, But yeah uh, The other thing is that They felt it was important To get rid of this Sort of Misconception That bots are not used In most cases To get a return From the stream You know The revenue Of the of the stream Because the numbers Don't generally add up yeah. mm -hmm. You know What you spend On getting those views Will not be returned by it It's it's about investment In image And perception And it's also about investment And just getting A foot in the door and trying to seize an opportunity before those views are all fucking audited. Um, one of the guys in that show actually recounts uh, a conversation with label owners who openly did not fucking care about real fans. Uh, they just wanted serious numbers. So he was approaching them, pitching acts, and the, the, the record label owners were like, we don't give a fuck about how many real fans they've got. We just want real fucking numbers because we will use that to basically leverage our way onto media, to, to force our way into people's attention because, you know, we will just give the impression that this act is blowing up and that's enough for us. And so mm -hmm. it's interesting to see that the short-sightedness exists already at the labels, mm -hmm. even though they know it. It shows how transitory and there's a lot of gambling involved in this. Definitely, uh -huh. um, Yeah, can I just pick up on something you said as well before we, we move on for that 
You were talking about how a, a disproportionate amount of these playlists seem to be made up of hip-hop. My initial impression, I have to say, was that the hip-hop community seems more vocal and pragmatic about the use of botnets and playola. Mm-hmm. You know, they seem a little bit more philosophical about it and like, fuck it, man, you just got to do what you got to do. You got to get out of these situations. You got to get that opportunity. You know, it seemed a lot more of that to it. It's, a, again, a genre where a lot of the artists value bragging rights as well. There's a lot of that in it on a cursory bit of research, I did tend to see more comments underneath it saying, yeah, it's just a necessary evil. The guy's got to do this. He's doing this, you know. That sentiment wasn't echoed in the same way in indie and certainly the acts don't trumpet it quite as much. That No Labels Necessary show said that they think that pop audiences are totally ambivalent to the use of bots. You know, Probably, I mean, yeah. I mean, fuck, I remember talking about um, Lady Gaga song that had 118 million views audited overnight. 118 million views removed overnight Mm. Her audience don't give a fuck They're not sitting there going she's a fraud But these guys did say the one thing is with hip hop Because of that kind of OG keeping it real Mm. thing That some people in the the hip hop community Get really put off Somebody being a fraud And they take it a lot more personally Pop audiences are completely disinterested I would say that Indie audiences Probably find it quite uncool you know, they probably aren't on the same page as a hip-hop audience, but nor are they as indifferent as the, the, the pop audience. So, uh, yeah, I think it's probably slightly different in terms of how it's perceived across the genres. Yeah, I think, you know, a, a large part of the reason that this episode comes to me in the way that it does is it just feels like it feeds back into this whole the whole ethics of, you know, music and major labels and, and all that kind of thing. You know, it's, it's the punk attitude in me talking, like, you, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think also we should we should point out that, that there are other ways of gaming this system. Oh yeah, uh-huh. yeah. We're not just talking about Playola. I mean, there are making references to YouTube. You can buy fucking views on YouTube. You can buy Reddit upvotes. You can buy I Facebook imagine. concert responses. Mm-hmm. That's a big one. But it's like looks like however many hundred people are attending this concert, and you're like, whoa, I better go to that. And and personally, not meaning to deviate too much, but I think Submit Hub, Muso Soup, Groover. That's legitimized Piola. Yeah, me. totally. These systems, again, so. if you're not in a band, it used to be you would send a demo. That's to, the second option. That, that falls in the second option I mentioned. Yeah, so they, they, they are a genuine advocate for your music for money, but they're also now gatekeepers. It's also the case that Pitchfork or any number of even quite small blogs, blogs that you would think would be in touch with their fucking audiences, and you will be amazed at which of these blogs are actually now refusing to take submissions via anything other than one of these gatekeeping groups or companies that you have to pay. So let's say you you buy 50 tokens, it costs you three tokens, so that's basically three pounds, to send or submit a song to Pitchfork just for them to consider whether or not they're going to write about it. They keep some of that money as well. Yeah, and so the site keeps some of that money and the magazine gets a share of that money or the blog gets a share of that money. So rather than that blog doing what the fuck it was meant to do, which was listen to music and give it a platform, they are actually now charging you for the just the fucking opportunity that you they might listen to it. Mm-hmm. And it has things on it like, oh, if you pay this amount, we'll definitely listen to a full minute even if we don't like it, and we will send you a minimum of a 30-word reply. You know, and I, like, I've literally just tested the water with this shit to see what it's like, and it is absolutely fucking infuriating. Yeah, it's but, such yeah. a fucking racket, and it is the legitimate racket. That's the thing. We are talking about Playola, which is like the illegitimate racket, but the legitimate racket, it's a fucking shit show. It's well, yeah. fucking disgusting. Well, part of it, I think, well, that's why I, I, I spoke about that second option, because that is a legitimate part of it. You know, um, playlist push and sound and, and all that, and sound campaign, 
they will take hundreds of dollars on off you to do this consideration thing for the opportunity oh, yeah. to maybe get included. Yeah. and that is so fucking galling. Yeah. Uh-huh. By the way, I did promise this in part one, talking about Facebook uh, concert attendances for sale. Threaten. Full 10 day European tour yes. on the back of just all this bullshit. Mm-hmm. Fake listens, fake concert attendees, everything. Just played the game, got themselves around 10 shows in Europe. Well, didn't get around 10 shows in Europe, yeah. but uh, we've got an episode about that. If you yeah. want to go and fucking listen to it, go and listen to it. Yeah. So why here? Why me? Why now? Why is this episode even a thing? Did something happened to you, Mark. Yeah, something Where did the bad man so. touch you? Well, touch me in the, the st- robot. Touch me in the streams. Uh, so I fell down this rabbit hole because my band we ended up on a spot a bottled Spotify playlist. So we released an EP. One of the bad ones. One of the, one bad of the fake ones. ones. Yeah. We we ended up it's quite funny because the song that I ended up on it was called Fake Nice. <laughs> um so we released that song back in June. Uh, our EP came out in September just there. And basically what happened was one day I went on the Spotify artist profile and I noticed that we get seven hundred streams overnight. Mm-hmm. We're, a, we're a tiny band from Glasgow who probably has maybe 50 friends on a good day, right? Mm-hmm. Period. All over the world. Uh, and that probably includes our families as well. <laughs> uh, and I was like, huh, that's really strange. What is that? And I checked out the playlist and I, I was added to this playlist by a company called Artister. So I did a bit of investigation and I found out that uh, Artister are a website where you can go on and you give them money and they'll guarantee you additions to playlists with hundreds of thousands of people on them. Thus, you buy streams. But it kept happening, right? And we didn't pay for this. It just com- happened completely out of the blue. Our song managed to get over a thousand streams and then this shit started happening. So, to get at why a thousand streams is important to anyone who doesn't know is uh, Spotify tells us that a thousand streams is relevant because anything that has less than a thousand streams says less than a thousand doesn't give you the number. Mm-hmm. So there's obviously some kind of gate there, Right. I'm going to guess there's maybe another gate at 10,000, maybe another at 50, maybe another at 100 and so on. It was a very obvious one at 1,000. Yeah, very obvious one at 1,000. So once it breached that, we started to see this happen to our song. So if you go into Spotify and you'll see that uh, last time I checked, it's got over 6,300 streams. Reckon about between 1,500 and 2,000 of them are fake. The other 3,000, you'll probably be wondering as well, it actually worked a little bit. Because it started mm-hmm. to show up, you can see in your back end of your Spotify stats when it has algorithmic playlists. So it started to show up on, on the radio, it started to show up on Discover Weeklies, it started to show up on repeat for people. So it did, it did actually work. And that was kind of mind-blowing for me because that was like, oh, okay, that's cool. But also feels a bit weird because all, all suddenly all of our top listeners are in Los Angeles, which is a sure sign that it's bots because... Mm-hmm. You know, we're based in Scotland, so, I mean, we should at least have most of our plays in Glasgow, if not Scotland, and most of our plays should be coming from Britain. So, I did a bit of investigation on Artistar on some on Reddit and all that, and apparently their whole MO, right, is they don't contact people to ask them to be part of their playlists. They do that, people look at it and go, oh, shit, that's so cool, how did that happen? And then they'll go to the playlist and realise their song's been taken off it because Artistar only put you on it for 24 hours. And then you go to their website and then you'll see, oh, so they can, if I give them some money, then they can do this for me. Okay, maybe that's so. Yeah, so it's like, oh, you like that? You like that? Yeah. Want some more? Want some, yeah, you totally. Just yeah. give you a little taste. Yeah. Just a little taste to get you onto the, the skag. Yeah, and that's that's how it works. You know, yeah. that's, that's the whole business model. 
And it even says in their uh, About Us section of their website, it's like they don't use bots. They say they don't use bots because it goes against Spotify terms and conditions. But what we do do is that we incentivize our listeners on our app to listen to songs, which is a big red flag because amongst all the many things that Spotify measure for an artist is they measure passive and active listens. So if you're one of those guys who, when their band releases a song, just puts it on repeat on a computer in their house and just leaves it there for days... Spotify knows that's passive. It'll, that number will show up in your overall streamed plays. Yeah, but you're, you're not. But you're not you're getting not, it. From you're it. not skipping. You're not reversing. You're not pausing. You're not changing the album. You're not doing anything. Yeah, you're a passive listener, yeah. and you want active listeners because Spotify prioritizes that. You know. So yeah, I mean, I think artists' pricing goes from fifty dollars for one track up to twelve hundred dollars. They put like four tracks on like a premium, whatever their version is of a premium playlist. So you can start to see how the pattern can emerge. It comes back to like Chad Focus, right? Bless him. You know, and yeah. You know, he's either in a hot tub or a prison shower, right? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Uh, and when I said earlier on, I can relate to that, like using it as it becomes like crack because you see it and you're like, oh, fuck, it feels really good to have that number. Yeah. I want that number to grow. And especially because, as you say, it was that that actually created a little bit of a, a, a movement elsewhere. Mm. Like it did actually make a difference you know because on top of those yeah obviously fairly fake plays there's now a lot more that are real plays that wouldn't have been there otherwise and you can absolutely see how this happens and why it's becoming so ubiquitous yeah but there are downsides to it you know just like there's downsides to heroin that nobody talks about yeah um so yeah there's no guarantee that any of this shit actually works it does work for some people it can create some momentum, but eventually that momentum will tail off. Now that our EP is out, like because we're no longer getting added to these dodgy playlists, like we, at our peak we had two thousand two hundred and fifty listeners a month. That's fucking obscene. Some of the biggest artists in Glasgow that can go and do a tour and play to people, they're not getting anywhere near that, or maybe they're just getting that organically, you know. So that was bizarre, and now that's dropping like a stone, right? Yeah, but the thing is, if you're let's say a young aspiring hip hop artist. And or pop punk artists, I see it happening to young pop punk artists now as yeah, well. They're while doing, that number's it. there, anyone going on your site is like fucking hell. You know what I mean? They they are thinking like, yeah. wow, these guys are making waves, and maybe you get a support slot, maybe you get this, maybe you get that. There there are ways to leverage that while it's there that can actually ultimately put you ahead of the pack, yeah. and that's exactly the logic of people like Chad Focus, and that's the logic uh, behind what those pragmatic guys on that on that yeah. uh, YouTube channel were saying, that actually, you can see why people do it, you know? It totally fucks your algorithm though, because um, we've just recently had a f- the fans also like section added to a Spotify po- profile, that happens at some critical juncture, you start to surface artists that people also listen to, that listen to you. And it's full of hip hop artists, mm. and which I mean, shows that it's not listening to you. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, all, like I said, all of our plays are in Los Angeles or New York. We've got less than two hundred followers, despite the fact we've had two thousand listeners. That's like a ten. That's ten percent. You know, that's also really bad. And all those three things make us look like chumps. To anybody that does music marketing or anybody that's even remotely switched on, that makes us look like chumps. It makes us look like we've gamed the system when we haven't. It's just yeah. happened to us. And gamed it at a low level. Yeah, you know, and that fucking sucks, man. Well, I you can know? relate to something making you look like a chump. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because in a similar way, my own group had a song, a video that was released during lockdown, actually. They ended up with millions of views out of nowhere. I mean, we were like logging on and we were getting like 140,000 views a day at one point. And we're like, what the flying fuck is happening? Checked it out. It was appearing in like some sites in Indonesia and Kazakhstan and stuff. 
we bought farms, yeah. Genuinely never paid a fucking I wouldn't even know where to go to pay a fucking penny. But now we're in this situation where the, the ticker says millions of views, and I think there's about 70 comments underneath it. So Again, you look like an absolute balloon. You're trying. Uh, whenever we've contacted people about music-related things, I have to put the caveat. Yeah, by the way, there's a video in there with millions of views, and I realise it looks like we bought it, but we genuinely didn't. I don't know what happened. Mm-hmm. I, it's a very odd phenomenon. Yeah. So, I guess this all comes around to, to why does any of this even matter? Why Why have why this conversation? Yeah. Why have this I mean, conversation? That's, that's the ultimate question, really. So, so I'm going to bring I'm going to bring up three kind of points here, right? There was a digital revolution in music. It happened when the, the process of being able to make music became more accessible and easier than ever. Computers were involved. And we did an episode in the White Town song. Right. Um, which was made completely using computers in a guy's house. Uh, and that was in the mid-90s. As pro- as technology has gotten better, uh, the process of making music in your bedroom that sounds really good has become quite democratised, right? And then with the dawn of social media, the democratisation of music creation then meant a democratisation of promotion. You now didn't need to pay all that. You now didn't need to get pluggers involved or even be in a decent label. If you knew somebody with some connections, you could push your music out via social media and reach people. There have been windows of that, but then it also there have been other windows where it's led to you know the white noise effect, where suddenly, as we said, 60,000 songs are uploaded every day. And you're like, there's no quality control here or there's very little quality control. How the hell do we emerge from 60,000 fucking songs a day? Yeah. And that also feeds into the demand for these services that then kind of promise you that they can help you stick out from that pack and actually in some cases can, as you're, as you're talking about. It's hard to resist that draw. Yeah. And then Spotify and, and, and streaming services kind of take that democratisation even further. You don't even need a record label to get big anymore. You just mm-hmm. need to get on the right playlist and you'll you won a Grammy, yeah. you know, and the record label will then come calling afterwards. You don't need to get there first like it used to be in the old days. They'll then come to you. I mean, in some senses, there's a positive to that, as we've spoken about before, because the whole notion of exploitative record contracts has shifted quite a bit mm. because now often the artist is driving the discussion. Yeah. And then when, when the human curated playlists, that's a weird thing to say, the human curated playlists, when they became like the kingmakers... It just led to this promise of not even needing to pay for promotion anymore. If you get in the right playlist, you'll get to the right place. You know, you'll be able to make it. Which right? is kind of how it used to be with radio yeah, DJs. So. Totally, yeah. Just jobbies. So for new artists, the tools to become successful are more accessible than they've ever been at any point in history. And that's what makes this a big deal to talk about, right? Because we've spoken about it in the last episode in this episode that there's always been this illusion that music is a meritocracy. I think over the course of as we've grown older, we've we've come to realise it in, in ways big and small that that is definitely not the case. That the music industry is and always will be just smoke and mirrors, right? You still need resources to get seen, regardless of what those resources happen to be, whether that's money out of your own pocket or money from a label, whether it's you're paying on a bots to inflate your streams or whether a label's doing it for you and they're plugging you to radio and they're, you know, buying out all your tickets like Chad Focus does, you know. All of that means that you still need input some kind of cash at some point. Someone somewhere has to know who to talk to, who to pay off to get their career moving in a way that feels organic and not manufactured. And that's where a label is really, really handy. 
And a playlist can now get you among those labels. So you could say that this playlisting and this music streaming and these services, including the legit ones like you mentioned and also the bots, are just continuing to propagate the abhorrent practices of major labels that we know have always been quite predatory and rapacious. Um, and if you're keen to know more about this, go and do the research yourself like I did. And I think that um, 8 out of the 10 artists that do this kind of thing, it'll be a total waste of money. And like you said earlier on, they will see the numbers go up and they'll maybe feel that and then they can't get off it. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like a drug. Um, they'll just be chucking good money after bad in the hopes of attaining something which on the face of it seems quite accessible, but in the end is not. So I think that's why it matters, you know, because up and coming artists are now getting fed like a whole duffel bag full of lies and it's just lining the pockets of faceless companies, not just major record labels if you happen to be on one, but random people, they're just walking away with it and you get nothing in return. So I come at this from an ethical point of view. I think that these practices are predatory and horrible and the fact that I've had a brief flirtation with it through no fault of my own, through no payment, kind of shows that it's really easy to get sucked into that game and not realise that there's actually a huge ethical quandary there. It just doesn't sit right with me and I think more people need to know about it because it's there's a really good chance that the new artist that you've heard has is, is been involved in something like this, either willingly or not. But I think what was shown is that there's a really good chance that the old artist that you know has been involved in something like this. Like back in the Peola yeah. days, it was, <laughs> it was Fleetwood Mac and Bon Jovi. Now it's Dua Lipa and Ed Sheeran. It's not just these these young artists and the ones that fail to break through. Uh, you're right. I think it's you know it's more micro targeted now, and it is just so blanket that like people would be horrified if they knew just how many, just what percentage of artists have actually undertaken something like this, especially famous ones. I mean, I think for my closing thoughts on this, and my I, I do want to present some counterpoints because it's easy to be. Cynical, that's my natural disposition Especially in these kind of subjects You know I'm not a cynical person And I'm coming down on one side of this quite no, hard You are a, you are a smiley emoji But um, I did read some interesting reflections on it So a guy called Ralph Gleason. This is going way back to the Paola days He was the founding editor of Rolling Stone And he, he maintained that regardless of Paola You quote, can't buy a hit and although Paola did drive listens, and we can we can apply this uh, to uh, the modern scenario as well, the record will ultimately succeed or otherwise on merit. Uh, you know, some of the high profile cases we've mentioned, like that band Dream, who had three hundred grand spent on one single in Paola and never took, that would seem to sort of back up his point. However, the fact that the charts are dominated almost exclusively by major label acts somewhat suggests it's not. An Entirely true that this is a meritocracy. You know, like writing a tune is enough to, to get success. There are exceptions. There are your best. That you know, there are there are things like that, but. It's very much an exception to the rule. Uh, you know, radio station playlists, the diversity in them is, is hugely reduced now as well. That that was a constant trend. Increasingly so, decreasingly so, I'm not sure how decreasingly yeah. Um and I think the the widely varied mosaic picture that would emerge if pure merit and subjective taste were driving station playlists, that's simply not there to be observed. 
So I, I get what Gleason's saying, but he's saying it from the perspective of above a certain threshold. If you're an act above a certain threshold and you pay money, you can't make that song into a hit. Yes, that's probably true to a certain extent, but also he's not really addressing the inverse of that, which is that if you write an absolute fucking ripper of a song, the entire system is so sewn up that you can't even get off the fucking first base to stand a fair chance because the people at the top have closed that off. It is sealed, it is inaccessible, the ladder is very much pulled up. So this notion that good songs prosper is pretty fucking naive as well. It sort of suggests to me, you know, where he was in his career, that he was very much in this area, enjoying the sort of executive lounge Mm -hmm. at the football, forgetting that the people in the stands were pissing in a fucking concrete latrine, you know, where everybody's smoking around them. So I think you can lose track of that a wee bit. Let's also bear in mind that market factors are behind all of this. So none of these phenomena are as simple as I'm making them out. It's not, you know, good song, successful, pay for money, whatever. It's it's not like that. I get that. But we're kind of flattening it a wee bit. Um, I think record companies with financial clout to dominate playlists and broadcasting are unrivaled in the people they can access. So being at that level still helps. There are still advantages in that, you know, versus being a bedroom band. But as Mark says, the way things have modernised, it's no longer the be-all and end-all of it. And I noticed that in the National Review, uh, the, the the magazine, there was a counter-perspective that said it's actually maybe in the interests of major labels to outlaw payola or equivalents since they are the ones that have the monopoly and distribution. They are the ones with the contacts. You know, it's odd that they continue to perpetuate payola or playola when in fact what they're doing is creating a system that allows people without the contacts to access success. I don't know if I agree with National Review on that, but I thought I'd give them a mention anyway because we represent both sides. Hang on, so what's the overall point of what you're saying there? That National Review think that Paola is actually contrary to the interests of major labels. I think, I can see the argument for that for sure. I, I just think it's... They don't not, need it. Yeah, exactly, but yet they're the ones that absolutely yeah, nurtured it. Yeah, uh-huh, totally. I just, the the thing I would finish on, um, which is more of a philosophical point, just going back to what you were saying there about the ethical side of it, I think there's a weird moral compunction here. Excuse the devil's advocacy and a wee bit of nihilism here, but it's interesting that we have this compunction to try and consider or try and see music as a meritocracy. You know, that we undertake these legal actions and campaigns in pursuit of something like equal opportunity. Because... Yeah, whilst passing a law against Paola or, you know, Spotify creating rules against Playola might be a step in that direction. It might be a tiny step and saying, oh, look, things are fairer now because we've we've ruled this out. It just seems incredibly naive to me to think that even in a world where Paola, Playola didn't happen, that it would be even remotely meritocratic. Because yeah. it's absolutely not. Yeah. And it's so strange to me that we're so fucking hung up on trying to make music in a meritocracy because music is not a meritocracy. Yeah. Should it be? That's a fucking fictional world. It's like, it's like of course, I'm very much of the belief that it, that, that it should be, but it's not, to me, an attainable reality. Yeah. And it just sometimes when we get so deep into these conversations, I'm just like, fuck me, man. We just need to fucking get a wee bit more realistic. And when I think back to the interviews with those guys, for example, on that YouTube channel or with Chad, they're just like, this is what I had to do to stand a chance. That pragmatism is born of, I could sit about whining about idealism or I could just fucking do it and try and make it work for me. And I kind of, even though I think prior to doing this, I would have been more inclined to kind of shit on those guys for sort of selling out. I'm like, well, you know what? Actually, it is fucking exhausting trying to be like 
a savior. Yeah, like, you know, and they've just given up on that. Um, well, can I just can I just say that um, I think the music industry does try to sell that illusion that that is a meritocracy, right? It behooves them to do that. Yeah, and that's yeah. also why they constantly. This what we're talking about is deception, right? So yeah, what, totally. That's what I said. Smoking mirrors. That is smoking Yeah, mirrors, going right? way back yeah. to the start, it's not that advertising or promoting something is wrong is that promoting Definitely, something yeah. and mm-hmm. pretending you didn't promote it is wrong yeah. just like an artist pretending they write their songs when they don't is wrong this is this fake meritocracy you know she is famous because she is a brilliant writer he is famous because he just rose to success on the brilliance of his playing mm. it's like no both of them have a massive world of deceit behind them that has elevated them to that status. And that's ultimately the fucking baseline of this entire conversation, that what we're seeing in music, it's just a, it's a Potemkin industry. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I suppose my, my whole way of coming at it is that we should be highlighting these disgusting practices because it does, it leads people to do things and spend money in, on services and stuff and end up getting hurt in the process. Yeah, you want to save it, like, you know, other like, musicians from maybe getting burnt by it, absolutely. And also bring it to the attention of the public because, you know, like... For me, man, I've given up and trying to make the world a better place. I just <laughs> want to do it because I like spoiling people's nights and I like really ruining it when they want to just go and listen to Taylor Swift and <laughs> I just make them feel fucking terrible. I genuinely feel a lot better when I make other people really unhappy for doing <laughs> stuff like that. And I, that's exactly why I thought this was a good podcast to do. Fair enough. You did a lot of research for it, man. I'd, hats off to you. I've, I've still more to come, mate. I've still not finished all of it. But yeah, join us for part three. <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't end. That does end here. Yeah, this is the end. Yeah, so thank you very much for sticking with us throughout this I've enjoyed it. You may not have enjoyed it. I'm going to enjoy um, editing it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, probably um, lot, and yeah. then hopefully you will come back next week and we will be joined by a guest. Yeah. Great. So join us for that. Yeah, it'll be good. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, while you're here, it was since, since you're here. Since you're here. <laughs> uh, nip over to Patreon, you know, just as you're finishing. Uh, you've, you've, you're done washing the dishes now. Go and drop Again, four, for the third time. Go and drop four <laughs> quid in the purse. In fact... Anybody that subscribes at £6.50, we will take it as a sign that you never want us to do an episode like this again. So if you want to send us that message, go and make a payment at £6.50 and we'll be like, whoa, they found that fucking boring. No more of those. Yeah. All right? So I look I like forward it. to checking the bank. Good incentive. Take care of yourselves. Uh, good luck surfing the internet and yeah. enjoying it now that we've spoiled that for you. Stay well. safe out there. <laughs> See you later. Bye.